In part one of our exploration of the mysteries of Moses, we discussed a lot. I stated in that episode that I didn't want to go for three hours, and then I wound up going for about three hours. <laughs> well, what can I say? I'm nothing if not verbose. But that's because I wanted to be thorough, and I wanted to really lay the foundations of a lot of things and, and put things into context. So much of the Bible and the meaning behind events in the Bible is lost because people don't understand context. And that's something I don't want to be guilty of is failing to provide you know, a, a good amount of context. But tonight, hopefully, will be shorter because we're not going to be dealing with, with nearly as much. Last time we dealt with circumcision, we explored the historicity of circumcision. A lot of people don't realize circumcision did not originate with the Hebrews. Circumcision of children did, but circumcision was actually practiced by the Midianites. It was practiced by the Egyptians. And we know, we know it was practiced by the Egyptians, certainly because we have Egyptian art from antiquity that shows circumcision being practiced on older people, presumably either pubescent or post-pubescent premarital people. We also explored the two wives of Moses. A lot of people don't realize that Moses had two wives. We also explored what happened to Moses' children from Zipporah. And we found out that Gershom and his line falls, or not Gershom himself, but his lineage falls to idolatry and actually helps to bring the tribe of Dan under idols. And Eliezer's line is apparently blessed, and though Eliezer himself only has one son, the children that come from Eliezer are said in the Scripture to be a great many people. And so at the time of that writing, the tradition is that the descendants of Moses through Eliezer were 600,000 or more. So we laid those foundations, and we dealt with a lot. Tonight, we're going to be focused on two major points, two major mysteries. The first is something we don't hear about in the First Testament. We don't hear about this until we get to Jude. In Jude's letter, he's talking about apostates and apostasy. And he's talking about the three hallmarks of apostasy. And he makes this reference. He actually makes several references. We'll talk tonight. Uh, he makes these, this reference to an apocryphal work that's been largely lost. A Latin fragment called the Ascension or Assumption or Testament of Moses has been found. But it's incomplete. The actual part of the death of Moses is so mutilated and so much of it's lost that the last part of the book has disappeared. Yet we know that this now considered to be apocryphal work was known to the early church fathers. Origen talks about it and several others. And Jude mentions this story about Michael the archangel and the devil disputing over the body of Moses as if it's just common knowledge, as if we're expected to know this story. And yet it's a story that does not appear in the current canonical First Testament. We're also going to 
look at the implications of why the devil was disputing with the archangel Michael over the body of Moses. Why? Why would would the you know why would the devil want the body of Moses? Now you know you can get into some spooky stuff here. Um, there are some that say that he you know that he wanted to consume the body of Moses because we're told that you know he, that people refer to the devil as the serpent. And in the uh, in Genesis, it talks about that you know the serpent you know will have to crawl on its belly and it will eat the dust of the ground. And so some people say, well, the body becomes dust. So you know there's a spooky theory out there that maybe the devil wanted to consume the body of Moses. Um, I can't tell you that's not true, but I, I, I'll be honest, that's that's not a view that has a lot of support, and it's not a view that I think is really something the devil is that interested in. Uh, I think I think the devil had uh, far greater plans for the body of Moses than just consuming it, and uh, we'll talk about that supposition. And this is going to be a lot of supposition tonight because a lot of this stuff, because it doesn't appear in the scripture, at least not the canonical scripture we have today. There's a lot of speculation that we're going to have to do about this. It's this is going to be one of these episodes where it's. This is what uh, some people have said, and uh, take it or leave it, you know, because we don't really have a whole lot of support for a lot of this. But there are hints in the Bible at some things, particularly when we look at what role might the body of Moses have to play in the future. See, there may be a role for the corpse of Moses in the future, and it may not stay a corpse. So we'll talk about these strange goings-on in the Bible of why the devil wanted the body of Moses, perhaps, and what role the body of Moses may yet have. So tonight we'll be looking at those issues. Welcome to Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies. I'm Dr. Mick Robison, your guide through the controversies, history, and debates surrounding the Bible. If you like Bible heresies and orthodoxies, don't forget to subscribe or like on your podcast app and tell others about the show. I'm going to go ahead and just sort of take care of some business here. I'm looking at a way for people to show a little appreciation by giving a little to this ministry. To be honest with you, it takes a lot of time and research and books. Oh man, have you seen the price of books today? I mean, you'd think they're made out of gasoline as expensive they are. <laughs> you know, gas prices are outrageous. Well, book prices are equally outrageous. And so doing this research isn't cheap. So I'll be looking into a way that people out there can help support Bible heresies and orthodoxies. And I'll be talking about what I find and, and maybe what I set up in a future episode. But tonight we're going to jump into the second part of the Mysteries of Moses. Tonight will not be a PG episode like last time. So we're just going to jump into this. And we're going to start in the book of Jude. Remember, Jude has no chapters, right? It's just, or you can consider it to be just a one chapter book. And so we're going to be looking at verse 8 and 9. And we're going to set it up in verse 8 to give us some context. And then we're going to look specifically at verse 9. In like manner, nevertheless, those dreaming also the flesh indeed to defile. And the lordship they put away, and dignities they speak evil of. Yet Michael, the chief angel, when with the devil contending, 
he was disputing about the body of Moshe, did not dare to bring railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, that's interesting. What we're seeing here is we're talking about apostasy in the book of Jude. And the three hallmarks of apostasy that he talks about are defiling the flesh, despising dominion, and railing at dignities. I'm going to go ahead and point out something that's going to give people, my favorite phrase, give people a little heartburn, right? This gives people some heartburn. Because what Jude is saying, aside from his major thrust of dealing with the signs of apostasy, notice what he's saying in verse 9. That Michael, the chief of angels, he is the, the numero uno, he is the chief of angels. He is now what the devil was. The devil, if you remember some, from previous episodes, I talked about that, that the identity of the devil, he's not an archangel. He's a Keruvim. He was one of the Keruvim. He's a Keruv. And he was the covering Keruv. So he was in charge. He was large and in charge. He was the number one angel. And after his fall, it's Michael that takes over that position as the covering Karuv. He is the archangel. He is the number one angel. There are other captains of angels. There are other leaders of bands of angels. But Michael is the chief. He's the chief angel. And, and Jude tells us this. And you would think that if there was any angel that had the right to let the devil have it, you'd think it would be Michael. But we're told that he doesn't do it. Instead, Michael prays to God, The Lord rebuke you. That's actually a, a, an oblique prayer. Calling upon God, the only one who has a right to judgment, we're told. Remember what God says. Judgment is mine, says the Lord. Michael takes that literally. That saying, judgment is mine, says the Lord. Michael, by example, shows us, you have to take that literally. I don't think any of us are very good at that. You know, there's always somebody in your family, right? Two in mine, actually. And... There's always someone in the family that manages to ruin special occasions and that you just have a problem with. I hope this releases a little guilt for y'all. Uh, I have that issue too. And here I am, you know, I'm a minister and I'm doing a ministry and I have to confess to you, yeah, I'm not always the best at uh, holding my tongue when it comes to railing accusation. I don't think any of us are very good at it these days. Just look at our politicians if you want to talk about people that, that don't know how to hold their tongue and don't know how to follow the Lord's command of do not bring railing accusation. Um, they do it all the time. They do it for a living. I mean, just you know, look at the Congress and, and the railing accusation that they threw at former President Trump, even though they, you know, we know they, they, knew, they knew for a fact that these dossiers and Russian collusion things were completely made up. Yet... That, they thought, was their job to bring railing accusation just because it was somebody they didn't agree with and just because it was somebody that was in a different party. 
This is the society we live in, in today. And I'm not trying to be political, but I mean, it's a very glaring example. It's a very glaring example of sin. And as Christians, we are supposed to point out sin without judging the person. Okay? I'm not going to judge anybody who engaged in that sin, but I do have to point out the fact that it's sin. Okay? You are not supposed to bring railing accusation against a person. But you are supposed to point out that activity, that what you have done is sinful. But you don't judge the person. And what Jude is saying here is we're not even allowed to do it against the devil. Really? Really? Titus 3.2 says we're, we're, we're not supposed to speak evil of any man. And most don't think that even applies to the devil. But apparently, it does. And if you want confirmation of that, all you have to do is look at Yeshua. So if you look when Yeshua was tempted in the wilderness by the devil, this account is in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. To some people, this is a frustrating passage. It's frustrating because you really want to see Jesus go to town, or some people at least, really want to see Jesus just go to town on the devil. Yeshua is out in the wilderness. <clears throat> the devil has come to him. And the devil tempts him three times. Now, he's fasting, so of course the first thing the, the devil goes after is his mortal flesh's desire for food, right? And he's basically saying, you know, speak that this stone can become bread, right? In other words, use your power to sate your hunger. Use your power frivolously is really what this is about. What's Jesus' reply? What does Yeshua say? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Yehovah. This is what Yeshua says. This is how he answers him. There's no accusation. Notice that. Then the devil takes him and tries to tempt him by saying, well, you know, if you truly are you know, the Son of God, cast yourself down. And the, the angels will you know, lift you up and keep you basically from, from hurting yourself. And Yeshua says, it is written, do not tempt the Lord your God. He doesn't accuse the devil of anything. There's no railing accusation. He just says, it is written, do not tempt the Lord your God. The next time the devil comes and tries to, to tempt him with power. Now, I'm going to say this. This is going to upset people. We are told that the devil is the king of this world. God gave authority to the devil over this world. We don't know why. We don't know why. It is unclear. Let me state that categorically. It's unclear why the devil gets to have authority over this world and is the king of this world. But God's allowed that. This is why the devil takes Yeshua and tempts him saying that he will give him all that he can see. And it takes him up to an exceedingly high mountain 
and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and says to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So the reason the devil can make this offer, some people think, well, the devil's lying. Actually, he's not. The reason he can make this offer to Yeshua sincerely is because he is given authority over the world. He loses that authority at the Battle of the Plains of Megiddo, which happens in Revelation. It's what we call the Battle of Armageddon. It happens on the Plains of Megiddo. The Battle of the Plains of Megiddo is the final defeat of the devil. This is when God takes creation back from the influence, the power, and the authority of the devil. But the devil, we're told in the scriptures, is the king of this world. And this is why he makes this offer to Yeshua. Now, since I know that gives people heartburn, that the devil is the king of this world, let me read this out for you. John chapter 12, verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So there he's talking about the devil as the ruler of this world. John 14, 30. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Ephesians 2, 2. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. John 16, 11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. He's talking about, again, talking about the devil. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He's talking about the God, little g, of this world being the devil. Okay, so just understand that. The devil is referred to as the God of this world in the Scripture. This is why the devil has the authority to tempt Yeshua with ruling this world because he has that authority right now. He'll lose it, but he has it right now. What does Yeshua say? Get you hence enemy or get behind me enemy or adversary that's what the word satan means let's go back to satan again i want that to be clear in people's minds the devil and satan are not necessarily the same thing satan is a role it means enemy adversary one who bars the way one who is a stumbling block one who accuses or in the case of a court, a prosecutor, okay? Remember the story of Balaam's donkey. Balaam is, is, is going to go prophesy. He's a greedy guy. He's getting paid, and he, he's going to go prophesy. And God kind of sarcastically tells him he can go. We'll talk about Balaam's, the story of Balaam's donkey, and God actually uses sarcasm at one point, uh, or irony, depending on your point of view. And he gets mad when, when he says, oh, yeah, I, you can go, but you can't do what they want. You have to bless Israel. And then he actually goes. And God was actually being sarcastic. It, it, it actually is a show of sarcasm by God. 
And Balaam, that's why, that's why people don't understand, by the way, why God says Balaam can go and then gets mad that he goes. God was being sarcastic. And Balaam, and he expected Balaam to understand that because he'd already told him he couldn't go. And apparently God had used tone with Balaam that should have clearly conveyed sarcasm. And Balaam goes. And that's why God gets mad and sends this Satan to potentially slay him. But the donkey saves his life. The ass saves his life because the ass turns away from the angel three times. And the angel says, I was sent, in the Hebrew he says, I was sent to be a Satan unto you. In other words, an adversary or one who bars the way. Maybe even potentially an accuser. And he, and he says, if, if, if the ass hadn't turned away, I would have slain you and left her alive. The angel has no quarrel with the ass. He has no quarrel with the donkey. And he lets Balaam know that, that the donkey saved your life and I've got no quarrel with her. So understand that, though, about a Satan. A Satan is an adversary. God's wrath, in fact, at one point in the Bible is referred to as a Satan. So don't confuse the term Satan. Yeshua is using the word Satan here to refer to the devil. And very often in the Second Testament, the devil is the target, but not always. There's a time when Yeshua tells Peter, because Peter is looking at things with human eyes, and he gets on to Peter about it, and he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Well, the devil had not possessed Peter. That's not what he says. Because Yeshua in the next breath says, because you don't see things rightly. It depends on your translation. But you don't, you're, you're looking with human eyes. You're not looking with the eyes of God. Is basically what he says. And he's talking about that it's, it's Peter's human nature that is the stumbling block, the obstacle. All right? So it's the Satan. So again, I just whenever I run across Satan, I try to drive that home. You have to look at the context of the passage to know if the Satan that's being referred to is the devil or not. In this case, it is. It is the devil. But I just don't get in the habit that most people are in of say, saying Satan and always thinking the devil. It's not always the case. Okay? In this case, it is, though. And Yeshua says, get you hence, or, or get you away, enemy, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall you serve. That, by the way, is Matthew. The Luke account's very similar. Get you behind me, adversary. The, the difference there is Matthew says, Yeshua says, get you away, or get thee hence, Satan, and Luke says, get behind me, adversary or Satan. That's the only variance in the text, basically none, right? It's two people's point of view, telling the same story. The, quote, the quote's slightly different, but it's essentially the same, right? And in both cases, he says, you shall bow, in, in Luke, you shall bow before the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In Matthew, it's, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall you serve. Minor variance in the text, right? Minor variance in the two accounts. And that's to be expected with humans, right? Human beings may have some minor variances. It doesn't mean that the text is wrong. It's just two different witnesses, right, bearing witness to this message. They get the, the quote slightly different, but the meaning is exactly the same. 
don't let people try to pick that apart with you. There are people that try to say that, that the Bible is not real and all this stuff, and they'll point to little variances like this and say, you see, you see. No, you ask any lawyer or judge, you know, you get two witnesses of the same event, their accounts are going to slightly differ. That's just, that's because fact is filtered through their perception, and then they say what they saw, okay? It's just the way it is. People have slightly different perceptions. So don't let that 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 bother you. <clears throat> but anyway, so what we see here is that Yeshua is tempted by the devil. He answers the temptations with scriptures and wisdom, but he doesn't rail against the devil. And he tells the devil, go away. Leave me be. Get you, get you behind me or get you hence. It's basically modern times. He'd be like, dude, go away. Leave me alone. You're supposed to worship God and only God and only serve Him. You need to go home. You know, if, if Jesus was a millennial, that might, might have been the way He said it. So, but there's no railing accusation. So, if there's anybody, uh, you'd think Michael would have the right to let the devil have it. But if not Michael, certainly Yeshua. Yeshua certainly has the right to just let the devil have it. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Why? Well, I think we make two big mistakes in regard to the devil. The first is a lot of people try to pretend he's not there and ignore him. And that is a monumental mistake. But there's even potentially a worse mistake. And that is a failure to recognize his power, his majesty, and the fact that he has been given the governance over this world. He's the ruler of this world. And we are at war with the ruler of this world. And to fail to recognize that is a serious error. We don't stand a chance against the devil. His resources and power are too great. Only God stands a chance. And so if we are going to take on the devil, we're not going to win. And people say, well, through the power of God we can win. No. God wins the battle. God may have us speak words. God may have us do something or do this. But make no mistake. God doesn't win the battle through us. God doesn't need us. We need Him to fight the battle for us. Very, very, very different thought process there. God doesn't need us to fight the battle. We need God to fight the battle for us. And if God says, I want you to speak this or I want you to do this, we do it because God chooses to act in that way sometimes. But God is the only one who can accuse the devil. He's the only one that has the power of judgment. Judgment is mine, says the Lord. So understand this about the devil. We do owe the devil respect. What? We're supposed to respect 
the devil? Absolutely. Any general with more than two brain cells to rub together will tell you the worst mistake you can do in a war is to fail to respect and recognize the resourcefulness and power of your enemy. To underestimate your enemy is the worst mistake you can make in a war. And we owe our adversary respect. Even Michael the archangel had to treat the devil as a dignity. And Yeshua does as well. And they don't bring railing accusation against the devil because they are not allowed to rail against dignities. That is a mark of apostasy. Only God himself, who has dignity greater than any other, can accuse anyone. We're not even supposed to accuse and bring railing accusation against each other, much less something greater than us, like an angel. And I know that gives people a lot of heartburn. That's a very hard lesson for a Christian to understand, that we are actually supposed to respect our enemy, the devil. He is our enemy. I didn't say we like him. I didn't say respect him in the way you respect a beloved relative or the way you respect God. But we must give the devil respect. He has power and he's greater than us. And it's only God fighting for us that enables us to get out of the traps of the devil. So understand this. It is a bad thing to treat the devil lightly. He should never be treated lightly. Okay? And that's center point one, what Jude is saying here in this example. That's his major message there. The problem for us with this message isn't the fact that we have to res be respectful and treat our adversary as if he is something to be feared and dangerous. And while we fear no evil because we walk with God, we have to give the devil his due respect as a dignity. Even Michael did, and even Yeshua does. So we have to. But that's not even the point that is the sticking point for us today. It's where does this come from that there was this disagreement between Michael and the devil over the body of Moshe? Where does this come from? Well, before you get too much heartburn, because I'm sure you're popping in acids now about the fact that we're supposed to actually be respectful of our enemy. That's gonna, that, that, that made me have to pop a few tums when that, that got delivered to me as a message uh, by a pastor, uh, as a matter of fact, that we have to actually respect, you know, be respectful of our adversary. That, that, made, that gave me heartburn. But I'm going to give you some more heartburn. We don't have this story in the First Testament. It's not there. It's not there. This is, appears to be new information for us, but it's not for Jude. Jude takes this as, as written. We already know this. this. This is old hat. This is old information. And this happens quite a bit in the Bible. Remember, the Bible is not monolithic. 
There are at least four traditions, the Babylonian, which becomes the Masoretic, the Alexandrian, which becomes the Septuagint, the Jerusalem or Palestinian tradition, which is partially represented by the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then there's the Ethiopian tradition, which is represented by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Not all of these traditions had the same books, and not all of had the same books that they, they had in the past. Some of them have dropped books and lost books. But these traditions had canonical books in the past more than they have now. So, for example, Jude does this to us again a little farther on. In the First Testament, there's no indication, for example, that Enoch, 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 was a prophet. Look in verse 14 of Jude. And the seventh from Adam, Enoch, also prophesied to these men, saying, Behold, the Lord came with myriad of his saints to do judgment against all and to rebuke all, the ungodly of them concerning all their ungodly works, which they ungodly did, and concerning all the hard things ungodly sinners spoke against him. You think these people were ungodly? I think so. We're told by Jude, Enoch is a prophet. What do we get in the First Testament about him? Enoch was a righteous man, and he walked with God, and he walked with God, but was no more, because God took him. That's all, folks. That's all we're given. That's it in the First Testament. But we learn through Jude that Enoch was a prophet. As a matter of fact, this kind of gets Jude's epistle in trouble with some of the first church fathers early on. Some of them actually did not want to canonize the epistle of Jude because it refers to the Testament of Moses or the Assumption of Moses or the Ascension of Moses. All three titles are the same book. And it refers to the book of Enoch. And so we almost didn't have the epistle of Jude included in the Bible. A lot of people don't realize that. So, whence comes this tradition about Michael and the devil fighting over Moses' body? Notice, by the way, I'm going to give you a grammar aside. Notice I said, whence does this come? I didn't say, from whence does this come? The preposition whence means from what place. If you put from in front of whence, you're literally saying from from what place. Why would you say from twice? Why would you use two prepositions? From is a preposition, whence is a preposition. You don't double preposition. Don't pay attention to Hollywood. I go nuts when I see a movie, and they'll even have British actors that, are, that should know better, saying, we will send it back from whence it came. No, we will send it back whence it came. Oh, I scream, at the, I scream at the screen every time they do that. It's one of my grammatical pet peeves. If you're going to use archaic grammar, please get it right. Okay? Sorry. Just had to do that. I like my archaic grammar. Please get it right. So, whence comes this? This ascension of Moses. Maybe it's Testament of Moses or Assumption of Moses. Depends on the title. Same book. And this reference to Enoch, by the way, comes from the first book of Enoch, chapters 1, verse 9, five, uh, chapter 5, verse 4, 
and chapter 60, verse 8, specifically. Okay? I'm going to tell you that the Jerusalem tradition, we found fragments of Enoch in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it was canonical, in the, in the, at least in that community's version of the Jerusalem tradition. It's clearly canonical to the disciples because Jude references it and quotes it. Okay? Before we go on, let me give you a couple more. 2 Peter 2.5, we learn Noah was a preacher. That's not in Genesis. But Peter gives us what we think of as new information, but to Peter, this is all hat. The Jews at the time knew that Noah was a preacher. He was a preacher of righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.8 reveals what's left out of Exodus, and that the name of the Egyptian magicians who went against Moshe were Janus and Yambres, or Janus and Jambres. Elijah's story tells us that there's a three and a half year drought under King Ahab. But it's not until the Second Testament in James 5.17 in Luke chapter 4 that we learn that it's Elijah's prayers that shut the heavens so it doesn't rain. The Gospels don't even tell us everything. Who said it's better to give than receive? It was Yeshua. But he doesn't say it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. He says it, it's recorded in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Acts chapter 7, verse 25, reveals that Moshe murdered the Egyptian and he expected it to be a call for his people to rise up and they didn't do it. So again, whence comes this reference about the dispute over the body of, Mo of Moshe? Well, like I said, that is the assumption, testament, or ascension of, Mo of Moshe. It's called by any, any of the three titles. It was presumably a work in Hebrew or Aramaic, but we don't have any of those texts. It's known to early church fathers and both read and referenced by them. The question whether this was the text referenced by Jude is answered by Origen, who intimates that, that this is derived from a book which he calls the Ascension of Moses, Analepsis Moseos, that Jude was using as a current work in his day, and he was referring to it as Holy Scripture. Now, like I said, this gives people heartburn, but it's undeniable that Jude cites the first book of Enoch, and apparently the ascension or testament or assumption of, Mo of Moses. Furthermore, the existence of this assumption or ascension of Moses is testified by many other early writers. The earliest reference we can find that can be relied on is found in the works of Clement of Alexandria, who, when he was describing the death of Moshe, says that it's probable that Joshua saw two Moseses his dead body, and him in a spiritual heavenly body form. And this curious opinion is shared by Origen, who asserts that in a certain uncanonical book, mention is made of two presences of Moshe being seen, one alive in the spirit and the other dead in the body. Evodius, a contemporary of St. Augustine, has the same gloss. What he says is, is, when he ascended the mountain to die, the power of his body brought it to pass that there should be 
one body to commit to the earth, and another to be the companion of his attendant angel. So we're told from these early church fathers that in this assumption, ascension, or testament of Moshe, that it talks about that Joshua sees Moses die, and Moses gets up in a heavenly body fully visible to Joshua, and the heavenly body, Moses, goes with an angel, and the other body is left to be buried. Other writers give a different reason for the dispute which Michael um, had with, with, with the devil than, than some of those suggested by others. It's kind of interesting that uh, Ecumenius writes that the archangel took charge over Moses' body, but the devil claimed it as his own because it was the body of a murderer because Moses had killed an Egyptian. Uh, there's a scolian from 1840 on the passage in St. Jude that says that that it was when Satan asserted his claim and blasphemed that Michael replied, the Lord rebuke you. Epiphanius took from this book how the angels buried the body of Moses without washing it, for they had no need to wash it, nor were they defiled by contact with so holy and pure a body. Didymus of Alexandria, who lived in the 4th century, tells us that some people in his day raised an objection against the epistle of St. Jude, because it was referencing the assumption of Moses and Enoch. According to Jerome, the same epistle was rejected for its re reference to, again, Enoch. Mention is made of the assumption in some catalogs of the books of Scripture. Uh, there's a catalog of Nicephorus, and in that catalog, it's placed with the book of Enoch and the Testaments of the Patriarchs and a few others among what's called the Apocrypha of the Old Testament. And references made to it uh, in, also in the so-called synopsis of, of Athanasius. Uh, Apollinaris says it's to be noted that in the time of Moses there were also other books which are now apocryphal as evident from the epistle of St. Jude where he teaches about the body of Moshe but where he cites from an ancient scripture the passage behold the Lord cometh. So Apollinaris talked about that you know, the epistle of St. Jude is quoting from, from this now apocryphal work. Now, whether this assumption of Moses is originally written in Hebrew or not can't be determined now. It apparently was translated into Greek, and scholars have said that they know that the Greek form is what the early church fathers were referencing uh, most often. And there's also internal evidence that the Latin version that you can find today, or the incomplete Latin version, was actually made from the Greek, not the Hebrew. So was, there's some internal evidence with the way the grammar is and everything that it was translated into Latin from Greek rather than Hebrew or Aramaic. <clears throat> the book as we have it now is divided into two parts. The charge of, Mos of Moshe to, to Joshua, his successor, and then there's the self-deprecating speech by Joshua to which Moshe uh, makes encouraging reply. And it's broken short, though, by mutilation of the manuscript. And the rest of it's either illegible or missing. And so the whole passage about the death of Moshe is lost. But we know it was there because of these early church writers telling us it was there. They say it was there. So that's where this tradition apparently came from. So let's look at Michael for a minute. Let's, let's talk about this archangel Michael. He's referenced in Daniel chapter 10. And Daniel's going through a fast for 21 days, and an angel comes to him and tells him that a fallen angel called the Prince of Persia 
prevented him from coming to him. And the angel tells Daniel that he was sent the very first day. Now, Daniel's been going through this fast for 21 days, but the angel was sent day one, but he couldn't get to Daniel because the prince of Persia, being a fallen angel, not a human prince, but the fallen angel called the prince of, of Persia, kept him in tied up in battle for 21 days until the chief princes of all the angels, Michael, came and dealt with the prince of Persia and beat him back. And that allowed this angel to come to Daniel. And the angel tells Daniel that Persia's power is going to wane and another fallen angel, the prince of Greece, will come to power. And we find out that that's actually what happened. After Persia falls, the the Macedonian Greek Empire is the, is the next one to achieve great power. So the hint here is that there is a fallen angel that is set up by the devil to be the prince of about every country. So could that mean that there's a prince of the United States? Well, look at the way our country is going. Yeah, I bet there is. What gives us a little hope, though, is that there's apparently a holy prince as well. And we get that because of Michael's role. Now, <clears throat> let me address one thing. There's a mistranslation in a lot of texts that Michael is one of the chief princes, but in actuality what the, the passage says is that he is the first of the chief princes. In other words, he is the chief of the chiefs. So Michael is numero uno. He is the head angel. So just understand that. Your Bible may say one of the chief princes. That's actually a mistranslation. It should read the first of the chief princes. So Michael is number one. Now, <clears throat> here's the Masoretic text from Daniel. This is verse 13 of chapter 10. And the head of the kingdom of Persia is standing over against me twenty and one days. This is the angel speaking. And lo, Michael, first of the chief princes, hath come to help me, and I remained there near the kings of Persia. So Michael is the head of all angels, and he helps out this angel so that he can get to Daniel. Now, we're going to look in verse 21. This is the angel speaking. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things. But Michael, notice this, your prince. So Daniel is told that Michael is specifically his prince. Not specifically Daniel's. You're going to find this out when we look at this. That he is the prince of the Jews. The prince of Israel. Michael is not only the head of all angels, he is the holy prince that's in charge of the nation of Israel. And we see that with angels. The angels have certain jobs. For example, Gabriel. If you look at Gabriel, he's almost always associated with, the mess with messianic messages. Let's look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And at that time, Michael, the great prince, shall stand up. That stands over the children of your people. And there shall be a time of tribulation, such tribulation as has not been from the time that there was a nation on the earth until that time. At that time your people shall be delivered, even every one that is written in the book. Notice what he says. Michael the great prince shall stand up, 
that stands over the children of your people. Michael's charge is Israel. There is a time of Jacob's trouble that's coming. It's going to be a time in Revelation. It's after the, church, the rapture and all that when the Jews are going to be a major target. And that's when Michael's going to go to work defending the Jews. Not only that, but there will be two witnesses. And we'll talk about the two witnesses in a little bit. The two witnesses are Jewish saints. They have to be Jewish because this is the time of Jacob's trouble. This is when there is persecution of the nation of Israel. It's going to, the, the Antichrist is going to set his sights on Israel. And he's going to set himself up as a false god. Israel's going to rebel. And he's going to be going after Israel. And this is when Michael's going to work. This is when the two witnesses come. Okay, But the point here is that Michael is in charge of Israel. So why were Michael and Satan disputing over the body of Moses? As I mentioned before, one tradition is, is that Moses was a murderer, so the devil uses the excuse, well, the body should be mine because he was a murderer. I think that's an excuse. I think, though, there was a real diabolical, and I use that phrase advisedly, but I think there was a real diabolical reason the devil wanted Moses' body. What we know is that God himself buries Moshe. He buries Moses. And no one knows where he's buried. That's Deuteronomy chapter 34. Okay? Now there's a lot of traditions that come out of this. For example, example uh, one of the, the, the great commentaries on the scripture is the Targum of Jonathan. And, and the Targum of Jonathan expounds on the tradition and tells you what the Jewish tradition actually says. And it says that Michael and Gabriel spread forth the golden bed fastened with chrysolites, gems, and beryls adorned with, hanging with hangings of purple silk and satin and white linens. Metatron, Jophiel, Uriel, and Ye uh, it, this is hard. One, this is a hard one to pronounce. Yefifua. Man, it's a hard one to pronounce. These are angels. The wise sages laid him upon it, and his God's word. He conducted him four miles and buried him in the valley opposite of Beth Peor that Israel, as oft as they looked up to Peor, may have the memory of their sin and at sight of the burying of the place of Moshe may be humbled. But no man knoweth his sepulcher until this day. So we're told in the Bible and in the Targum of Jonathan that God buries Moshe opposite Beth Peor. Now that puts us into a region known as Pisgah. Now I want to clarify something here. There is a Mount Pisgah today, but the word Pisgah just means summit. And so if you read the Bible, it talks about that Moses went to Mount Nebo to, you know, to Pisgah, which is the summit. That's where he looks upon what's going to become the nation of Israel, right? This is when he looks on the Holy Land. We're told in the tradition that Moses is buried in the valley and that God conducted him four miles. And that would have put him in the valley of the Jordan at the base of the next mountain next to Nebo, which is the modern-day Mount Pisgah. Or he could have gone four miles the other way. We're not sure. But to make him opposite Beth Peor, that has to be at the modern-day location that's identified as Mount Pisgah. Actually, Pisgah was a region of mountains. It was known as the Pisgah region. Nebo was the highest peak. 
okay? But today, they talk about this one mountain that's a little bit north, I think it's, yeah, it's a little bit north of Nebo, and they call that Mount Pisgah. But actually, Pisgah is the region at the time of Moshe. So it's a little confusing there. But just understand that what's identified today as Mount Pisgah at the time was not identified as Pisgah. Pisgah was the region. Moses goes up on Nebo, he goes down Nebo, he dies in the valley, in the Vale of the Jordan. And according to tradition, he's conducted four miles and he's buried opposite Beth Peor. That would have put him at the base, somewhere on the base of what's today Mount Pisgah. So keep that in mind. That's going to be important later. Josephus in Antiquities of the Jews, Volume 4, Chapter 8, talks about how venerated Moshe was. And, that, and he even says that Moses himself wrote that he had died in his last book, lest anyone say he was taken up into heaven. So Josephus makes the argument that chapter 34 of Deuteronomy was prophetically written by Moses because Moses was perhaps afraid of being revered like Enoch. He didn't want people to say that he was, that he was translated and taken directly to heaven like Enoch was. So he writes in, in his book that he died. Other people contend it was Joshua who penned the final chapter of Deuteronomy to finish out Moses' work. I'm not going to take sides on that. I think either one is plausible. Pick which one you like. But I want to give you a taste, though, for why one of the traditions, and it's a, it's a pretty mainstream view about why the devil wanted the body of Moses. It doesn't have any direct scriptural support, but it's got some indirect support. You see, Moses, we're told Moses was so venerated that Moses even writes, this is Josephus saying that, that Moses even writes that he died because he didn't want people to say he had ascended directly into heaven like Enoch had. But what's more interesting is that the devil's goal is always false worship, right? The devil tempts people with, with idols. He gets Gershom's descendants to descend into idolatry. The devil's always trying to thwart the plan of God, and one way he likes to do it is to derail people from worshiping God and start worshiping false things. Moses would have been an opportunity for which the devil was just drooling because he was so venerated that it would have been very easy for the devil to get people to worship Moshe instead of God. And if you don't believe me, the devil does it not as effectively as he could have because he didn't have the body of Moses and he didn't have the grave. But if he had known where the, the, the grave was, I guarantee you he would have let people know it so they would have gone and worshipped at the grave of Moshe. If he'd had the body, I think he would have done it even better and said, oh, great, we've got the body of Moshe. You've got, look, here he is. Venerate him. And over time he would have turned Israel to worshipping Moshe. Where do I get support for that? Hypothesis, And where do other people get support for the hypothesis? Because it didn't originate with me. Well, let's look in four kingdoms 
chapter 18. That's 2 Kings in the Masoretic, 4th Kingdoms in the Septuagint. Here's the Masoretic text. And we're going to talk about Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah, Hezekiah was a cool dude. God, you get the feeling God likes Hezekiah. He's come through a line of kings. The kings stray from God. And Hezekiah doesn't make that mistake. He tries to bring the people back to God. And we're told that Hezekiah did right in the eyes of God. We're told that. God approved of Hezekiah. Hezekiah tries to do the right thing. He doesn't ultimately succeed in a lot of ways, but he, get, he tries. He does right in the eyes of God. The people are another matter. Let's look at, four, uh, this is Masoretic text, 2 Kings 18, verse 1. And it happened in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, the king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, the king of Judah, began to reign. He was a son of 25 years when he began his reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. And the name of his mother was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the eyes of Jehovah, according to all that his father David did. He took away the high places and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down Asherah, that's the groves, that's these groves that were being used to worship certain gods, and beat to bits the bronze serpent that Moshe made. For in those days it was the sons of Israel that burned sacrifices to it and called it Nehushtan. Now, I want to talk about this passage here, particularly verse 4, because I want to tell you, this passage is a little confusing because of the way it gets translated a lot. Let me, let me read you some versions out of the Masoretic text on verse 4 here. And you'll see that it's not always translated the same way. New International Version. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the, the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Okay? It's that last part that's, that, that tends to confuse people. New Living Translation says uh, <clears throat> he, broke, he broke, the, broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. The bronze serpent was called Nehushtan. Okay, so you get a lot of those that it makes it sound like that the people of Israel are calling this bronze serpent Nehushtan. Okay, the word Nehushtan means piece of brass or piece of bronze. I want to make it clear here. It's not the people of Israel that were calling it Nehushtan. It's Hezekiah. This is contempt on Hezekiah's part, okay? Let me read you from a, a literal translation so that you can see actually what it's saying. This is 
the literal standard version says, uh, cut down the Asherah and beat down the bronze serpent that Moses made. For up to these days, the sons of Israel were making incense to it, and he called it a piece of bronze. Young's literal, uh, beat down the brazen serpent that Moses made. For unto these days were the sons of Israel making perfume to it. That's, that's incense. And he calleth it a piece of brass. So it's Hezekiah that's, that's actually referring to this as a piece of brass. I want to make that, that clear because that, that gets a little bit lost. Now, let's look at the Septuagint version because the Septuagint is a lot more clear on that. The Septuagint version says the same thing. The names are a little different, right? Because when they translate it into Greek, the names get changed a little bit. Because in the third year of Ossi, son of Eli, king of Israel, that E-Z-E-K-I-A-S, Ezekias, that's Hezekiah. That's the Greek version of, of Hezekiah. Son of Achaz, king of Judah, began to reign, right? So let's look at verse 4. He removed the high places and broke in pieces the pillars and utterly destroyed the groves and the brazen serpent which Moshe made because until those days the children of Israel burnt incense to it and he called it Nistan. Right? The Septuagint is very clear and he, talking about Hezekiah. So Hezekiah refers to this brazen serpent as a piece of brass or a piece of bronze. It means either one. Now, I'm going to give you some background on this, this piece of brass, this piece of bronze that Moses made that comes from Numbers 21. First, I want to say that, again, Hezekiah, this is a venerated object that Moses had made. And I'm going to tell you this, and this is going to give people a little bit of a start. This is a representation of Yeshua. All right, but it's become an idol. And you're saying, wait a minute, this is a representation of Yeshua? Are you telling me that Jesus was a brazen serpent? Let me run down this, this incident for you. This is out of Numbers. Okay, it's the book of Numbers. And it's chapter 21, verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moshe. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no bread and there is no water and our soul hates this light bread. And Jehovah sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. And the people came unto Moshe and said, We have sinned for we have spoken against Jehovah and against you. Pray to Jehovah and he shall turn the serpent away from us. And Moshe prayed on behalf of the people. And Jehovah spoke to Moshe saying, Make yourself a fiery serpent, and set it on a pole. And it shall be that when anyone is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. And Moshe made a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole. And it happened, if a serpent had bitten any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Masoretic. Murphy gets us in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's not there. Here's Septuagint. And the... And the People spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why is this? Have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us in the wilderness? For there is no bread nor water, and our soul loathes this light bread. And the Lord sent among the people deadly serpents, and they bit the people, and much people of the children of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, 
for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray therefore to the Lord and let him take away the serpent from us. And Moses prayed to the Lord for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make you a serpent and put it on a signal staff. And it shall come to pass that whenever a serpent shall bite a man, everyone so bitten that looks upon it shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a signal staff. And it came to pass that whenever a serpent bit a man and he looked on the brazen serpent, he lived. So what this is, is this is a representation of Yeshua. It's a prophecy of the crucifixion. Why is that? Well, in biblical, in biblical parlance, brass and bronze were metals that could take heat well. And they become associated with fire and thus judgment. The serpent tempted Eve in the garden and brought sin into the world. So the serpent represented sin. Jesus becomes sin. The scriptures tell us this. He becomes sin and takes judgment of that sin for us. So the bronze serpent or brass serpent is Yeshua. It's Jesus. Okay? It is a representation of Yeshua. It's a prophecy of Yeshua. Yeshua, anyone that looks to the cross, will be saved from their sin. And the serpent represented sin, and the serpents that are biting the people, the wages of sin is death, right? They bite the people, they die, they're sin. But the people are delivered from death when they look at the serpent on the pole, which is Jesus who becomes the serpent. He becomes sin on the cross for us, and the judgment is rendered against Yeshua instead of us. And so Yeshua pays for our sins that way by becoming sin and getting judged. See? Isn't that neat? Yeshua is actually represented by the brass serpent. A lot of people don't like to think that Yeshua was, was a serpent, but yes, Yeshua is represented by that brass serpent. It's a prophecy of Yeshua. It's a prophecy of the cross. But Hezekiah did right in the eyes of God by referring to this representation of Christ contemptuously and destroying it because it had become perverted. They'd lost the meaning of it and they worshipped it as an idol. Anyone who bows before a cross and prays to the cross or to a representation of Christ on the cross, a crucifix, anyone who prays to that like it is a God has defiled that and that image should be destroyed. Honestly. That's basically what this is saying. Okay? You don't pray to the crucifix. The crucifix is to remind you of Yeshua. You don't pray to the crucifix. You pray to Yeshua. But they're praying essentially to the crucifix. That's what these Jews are doing. They're praying to it, burning incense to it like it's a God. Okay? Now, why is this important? Why am I hammering this home? This is what the devil did with the legacy of Moshe. He took the legacy of Moses and twisted it. Imagine what he would have done if he had had the grave, or better yet, the body 
of Moses. It is many people's contention, and it's a, a view that I'll go ahead and tell you that I happen to agree with, that the entire reason the devil disputed with Michael over the body of Moses, whatever excuse he used to try to get it, is because he wanted to do this with it. He wanted to set people up worshiping Moses, turning their reverence for Moses into worship. It's okay to revere Moses as long as you're not worshiping Moses and you're revering Moses for his relationship with God and you're worshiping God. That's okay. It's okay to respect Moses and revere him for his relationship with God. It's not okay to worship him. And they're worshiping the brass serpent because of the legacy of Moses getting perverted by the devil into idol worship. And I contend, and I think many other people contend, that that's very likely if he had gotten his hands on the body of Moshe, that's what the devil would have done with the body. They set it up so people worshiped it instead of God. All right? Now, <clears throat> is there any other reason besides preventing that mess that God buries Moshe himself? Why does God bury Moshe himself? God's not in the habit of burying people. He only that I'm, that I'm aware of, I think he only buries Moshe. God personally does certain things. He personally closes the door to the ark to save Noah. He personally does that. He personally buries Moshe. Why? Well, obviously part of it is to prevent its misuse by the devil, right? He wants to, pre he wants to prevent the devil from misusing that corpse and keeps the, the burial place secret, probably even from the devil, so the devil can't you know, misuse that. Could there be another reason, though? There's a hypothesis, a speculation, that the body of Moshe might be needed again, that it has a future role. You see, there are two prophets that make God mad, and God cuts their mission short. There are two prophets whose mission is not completed. It's interrupted. Now, the first prophet whose ministry gets interrupted because he makes God angry is Moshe. You see, there's a time when they're wandering in the wilderness that Moshe is instructed to go and strike a rock and it's going to cause water to come from it. So Moshe goes and he, you know, wails on a rock and water comes out of it. And it's, everything's hunky-dory. He's obeyed. Then there comes a time where they don't have water again. And this time, God tells Moshe, speak to a rock. Now, <clears throat> I don't know what this was going to look like. I don't know if Rose, Moses was supposed to walk up to the rock and kind of pat it and say, hey, um, I don't know what to say to you, uh, but God told me to talk to you, Rock, so um, can you give us some water? So, you know, I don't know exactly how that was supposed to look, but he was supposed to talk to the Rock. God, if he's angry with the people for being so doubting and everything, 
God doesn't really show it at this point. But if you read the passage, Moshe tells the people that there's anger through example, right? He tells them, you villains, you rebels. Well, this is not what God has told Moshe to do. He doesn't do what God says to do. He misrepresents the anger of God. God's, God hasn't expressed anger. Moses expressed, expressed anger. That's the first thing you have to understand. So let's look at Numbers chapter 20. This is when this happens. We're going to look at verse 7 through 12. And Yehovah spoke to Moshe, saying, Take the rod and assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron, and speak to the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth its water, and you shall bring water out of the rock to them. So you shall water the congregation and their animals. And Moshe took the rod from before Jehovah as he commanded him. And Moshe and Aaron assembled the congregation before the rock. And he, talking about Moshe, said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Shall we bring forth water to you out of this rock? And Moshe lifted up his hand and smote the rock with his rod twice. And much water came out, and the congregation and their animals drank. And Jehovah said to Moshe and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to sanctify me before the eyes of the sons of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring in this congregation to the land which I have given to them. Uh-oh. <clears throat> now that's the Masoretic. I will go ahead and tell you the Septuagint. It's Greek, of course, so it's not exactly word for word, but it's pretty much word for word. Okay, it's... it's it, it, it's pretty much exactly the same. Um, it translates as, hear me, disobedient ones, instead of rebels. But Septuagint's almost exactly the same. Now, first of all, Moshe makes a mistake because he misrepresents God. He's a false witness. They take Moses as representing God. So when Moshe says, hear me, disobedient ones or rebels, they take that God is angry with them. God didn't express anger, didn't tell Moshe to express anger. So Moshe bore false witness. Number one. Number two, what does he say? Shall we bring forth water to you out of this rock? He's giving credit for this to himself and Aaron. No, no, no. No, no, he's taking credit where it's not due, right? False witness again. Then it's just pure temper and disobedience. I think God might have had a chuckle if Moses had gone up to the rock and said, all right, guys, God told me to talk to the rock. And he looked at the rock and said, hey, rock, um, I don't know if you can understand me, and uh, I really don't know what to say to a rock, but God said speak to you, so... Oh, in the name of God, give me water. In the name of God. Doesn't it like, some, you know, like talking to somebody that you, that you don't think understands you? You know, we always get louder and slower. Have you ever noticed that when you talk to somebody that doesn't quite speak the language? You know, I think God would have gotten a chuckle if Moses would have looked at the rock and, got, and said, 
And God said, give us water. You know, I think God would have had a chuckle if Moses had said that, but that's not what he does. He's totally disobedient and strikes the rock. Now, there are some theolo theological points here that a lot of people like to point out. <clears throat> Yeshua, the Christ, is referred to as the living water, right? And so a lot of people draw a parallel and... You know, there's sometimes people will draw a parallel where it may be a stretch and sometimes maybe it's not. I agree, the brazen serpent on the pole is clearly a prophecy of the crucifixion of Christ. There are some people, though, that say that the rock bringing forth the water is supposed to be Jesus. And he's stricken once, and that represents the crucifixion. But it was wrong to strike Jesus again. And so that's the, the, the gist of this. It's supposed to be both a prophecy of Yeshua. I'm going to be honest with you. That's a very common view. I don't see it personally. I think it's just an exercise in, 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 you know, sometimes the simplest answer is the right one. God said, strike it one time, and he said, speak to it the other. And Moses is just plain disobedient. And then he takes bears a false witness and takes credit for something that, that clearly is something God had to do. So I don't even know if this gets to the level of this rock representing Christ. I don't even know if it gets, it doesn't even have to get that far, frankly. Moses just has a temper fit and disobeys. All right, He's on an ego trip and he's, he's having a temper fit. Because of this, Moses is taken out. He's taken out of the game. So he has to anoint Yeshua 1.0, right? Joshua. He has to anoint the Old Testament Yeshua to take his place. And it's Joshua, Yeshua 1.0, that's going to take them in to the land of what will become Israel, right? The promised land, what, what, that land of Canaan. He's going to take them across the Jordan. Moses' mission is interrupted. It's not finished. It's left unfinished by him. His testimony is not finished. Now, I'm going to divert for a second because I want to clarify a couple of things because the next prophet who has an interrupted testimony is Elijah. Elijah kind of hacks off God. God's a little more subtle but Elijah hacks off God and gets taken out of the game. And they send in the substitute. But I'm going to deal with a couple of things about Elijah that confuse a lot of people because of John the Baptist and his relationship with Elijah. John the Baptist was Elijah, and yet he wasn't. And let's explain this. Let's explore this a little bit because it causes people a lot of confusion. And I'll be honest, it caused me confusion for years because Jesus says that John the Baptist was Elijah. But Elijah is not foretold to come until the second coming. And John the Baptist says he's not Elijah. So what is this all about? So let's delve into this and clear this mess up. And then we'll deal with the second coming of Elijah, because there's a second coming of Elijah. We're told this. All right? So let's deal with this. All right? The Gospel of John, chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 19. 
John the Baptist, now there's two Johns here, okay? The John writing the book of John is John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, okay? John the Baptist is the mortal herald. There's a pattern in the Bible. Whenever there's a physical manifestation of God or God's plan or redemption on the earth, there's a mortal herald. The first time this is done is Moshe. Moses is the first mortal herald. What's the first physical manifestation of, a, of, of God or, a, or a, a physical representation of God dwelling on the earth? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the first dwelling place in this view of God on the earth in a physical way. God dwelt in a way with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, God really is bigger than that, but and he didn't really dwell in the tabernacle, and he didn't really dwell in the Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark of the Covenant was that focal point for interaction with God, okay? It's a first physical uh, manifestation for man in this view of God, all right? It's Jesus 1.0 in a way is this Ark of the Covenant. It works miracles. It seems to almost have a personality at time. It, it, at time, it chooses to kill people sometimes. There's a guy who, 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 who touches it and he's slain, but David at one point touches it and he's not slain and he's not a Levite. So, <clears throat> this heralding of a physical presence of God is Moses. The next time there's a physical presence of God, John the Baptist is the herald, and it's Yeshua. In this view, in this view, okay. So understand that that that's a view. It's just a view, but there's this pattern of a mortal herald, and then there's the Ark of the Covenant. Then there's a mortal herald, and then there's the physical Messiah. Okay, before the return of Jesus. Physically, on the earth, there's supposed to be another mortal herald, and this time it's going to be Elijah. Elijah's going to come before the great judgment and the second coming of Christ. We're told that in Malachi. But right now we're going to look at John, and we're going to deal with John the Baptist as the mortal herald, but he's not Elijah. All right? John chapter 1, 19. John the Baptist set the stage is getting so popular that the Sanhedrin and the leadership of the Jews are kind of worried about who this guy is. And they're expecting three people. Alright? They're expecting three people. Alright? And they come to find out, you know, are you these three people or are you claiming to be one of these three people? Verse 19, And this is the witness of John the Baptist when the Jews, and the Baptist part is actually not in the Masoretic, or it's not in the, the scripture there. It's not Masoretic, it's Second Testament. But uh, it's not, but they, they bracket this because this is the book of John, but he's referring to John the Baptist, okay? So they'll sometimes, the translators will sometimes put in brackets the Baptist just to let you know that John's not referring to himself, okay? So, and this is the witness of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites, that they might ask him, Who are you? And he acknowledged and did not deny. Yea, he acknowledged, I am not the Christ. Now that's important. Notice that John the Baptist does not 
make the error of Simon Magus. He doesn't claim to be a Christ. Then they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And then they said, Are you that prophet? And he answered, No. So there's three people they're expecting at this time. They're expecting the Messiah. They're expecting Elijah and that prophet. Okay? So let's look at Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moshe, which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel, the statutes and judgments. Verse 5, Behold, I am sending you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Jehovah. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the sons, and the heart of the sons to their fathers, and I shall not come and strike the earth with utter destruction. So this is a prophecy of the great and dreadful day of judgment that Elijah is going to come back. This is before the second coming of Yeshua. Okay? And if you ever celebrate Passover with an Orthodox Jewish family, you'll notice there's an empty chair that's left, and the door is left either open or unlocked. Why? In case Elijah should show up. And they take that seriously. It's in case Elijah shows up. <clears throat> so now, there's confusion about John the Baptist, because Yeshua makes a remark equating John the Baptist with Elijah, but John denies being Elijah. So if you look at Matthew 11, verse 13, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive, he is Elijah, the one about to come. The one having ears to hear, let him hear. So he's saying that John the Baptist is Elijah, who is about to come. That confuses a lot of people. How can he be Elijah and about to come? Matthew 17, And his disciples asked him, Why then say the scribes that Elias, that's the Greek version of Elijah, must come first? And Yeshua answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall come first and restore all things. Shall, future tense. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So Yeshua is making a reference in both places that before the day of the Lord, Elijah is to return. And Yeshua confirms that in 11.14 and 17.11 of Matthew. He then points out that John the Baptist, who denied being Elijah, is in fact Elijah in role and spirit. But he's not Elijah himself. This is why Yeshua says that Elijah shall come first and restore all things. Future tense. John came as the mortal herald, but he heralded, he heralded in the spirit of Elijah and with the authority of Elijah the first coming of Yeshua. Malachi tells us that Elijah himself will not come, and Yeshua references this in both passages with his future prediction of Elijah coming. <clears throat> and
And Malachi tells us that Elijah himself will not come until the second coming. So John states he's not the Messiah, first person. He's not Elijah, the second person. And he's not that prophet, the third person. We can also see that Yeshua is referencing that John was Elijah in a way, but states that Elijah is still to come, meaning that John was Elijah in role and authority, but not in person. So Yeshua makes it clear that John the Baptist is metaphorically Elijah, but not Elijah himself. That prophecy is still to be fulfilled. So that answers that about Elijah. So who is that prophet? Now this comes from a Jewish tradition that is spawned out of Deuteronomy chapter 18 when God says he will send a prophet that is like God and will come from your brethren. That being Israel's brethren. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot of confusion here. A lot of confusion. Because there's tr three traditions surrounding this verse. And some contend that this verse actually is pointing to two different prophecies. Okay? Some Christians say that this verse, this promise of a prophet from your brethren, refers to two different prophets. Zoroaster, to the Zoroastrians, the brethren, brethren of course, meaning brethren of Israel, which are the Arabs, and so God sends Zoroaster to them, and at the same time, it also is referring to a prophet that will come to Israel from Israel. That's kind of interesting. It's, it almost sounds like people are trying to have their cake and eat it too, but it also could possibly be that way because Zoroaster is, or Zoroastrians have prominent roles at several places in the Bible, which we'll talk about later. I've, I've mentioned it in, in several episodes before. That Zoroastrians have some prominent roles in several places in the Bible. And so there is a theory that Zoroaster may have actually been a legitimate prophet of God sent to the children of Ishmael. Now, I'm not going to get into Muhammad, okay, because there's a lot of, of controversy that surrounds Muhammad when you look at the characteristics of a prophet. I encourage you to do that. Look at, at what Deuteronomy says. Look, look at what the characteristics of a prophet are and compare that to Muhammad. There's a lot of contention there. And I'm not going to get into that, but so the, the Muslims will point to this scripture and, and say that this is talking about Muhammad to come. However, one view one is it's pointing to Zoroaster. View two is it's pointing to Zoroaster and another prophet that comes to the Jews. View three, Muslim view, is that it's pointing to Muhammad. View four is it's talking about only Israel. That's not talking about Zoroaster or Muhammad. That it's talking about a second coming of Moses. Okay? In the Jewish tradition that spawned out of Deuteronomy chapter 18, it's believed that this prophet is a return of Moses. Okay? So the leadership of the Jews at the time of John the Baptist were worried that he was claiming to be either the Messiah, Elijah, or Moses. 
Now, going back to the striking of the rock when he was supposed to speak, I want to recapitulate here and, 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 and review that, that this is when he gets taken out of the game. Sin one is Moses acts upset, giving the impression that God's angry, and this is a false witness because God didn't use that tone. Moses then asked the crowd, must we bring you water out of the rock? This is taking false credit, sin two. Moses then strikes the rock, disobeying God's orders, and then does it again. He strikes it twice, sin three. And Moses does all of this defying God, showing his ego and expecting God to just go along with it despite the disobedience. So he strikes the rock expecting the water to come out when God said talk to the rock to make the water come out. That's pride and that's sin for. God then takes him out of the game and has him anoint Joshua to lead the people. Now this is backed up in Deuteronomy chapter 3, 29, uh, excuse me, verse 23 through 29 when Moses states that God was angry at him and this ended his ministry. Now, let's look at 1 Kings 19, which is third kingdoms in the Septuagint. And we're going to read from the Septuagint. And Eliohu, which is Elijah, said, Being zealous, I have been zealous for the Lord Almighty. For the sons of Israel forsook your covenant, and they tore down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am a remnant. And they are seeking my life to take it. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way, and you will come to the way of the wilderness of Damascus, and you shall anoint Hazael as king of Syria, and you shall anoint Ehu, son of Namesi, as king over Israel, and you shall anoint Elisei, that's Elisha, son of Saphat, of Abel Ma uh, this is so hard to pronounce, Abel Maula, as prophet in your stead. Look now, Dead Sea Scrolls Murphy again. Let's look at the Masoretic. And he said, "I've been very zealous for Jehovah, God of hosts, for the son of Israel have forsaken your covenant, and they have thrown down your altars, and they have slain your prophets by the sword, and I, I alone am left." And they seek to take my life. And Jehovah said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and you shall go in and anoint Hazael as king over Syria. And you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Meloa, excuse me, Mehola, ah, this is hard to pronounce, y'all, Abel Mehola, as prophet in your place. See, we see that Elijah had run for his life and tells God that he's the only one left that's faithful to God. He shows a lack of faith. And God tells Elijah that he's being replaced by Elisha. His faith failed despite miracles that he works. In verse 18, God tells Elijah that there are 7,000 that have not bent knees to Baal. And Elijah was saying, I'm the only one. He got whiny. I'm the only one. God's another 7,000. And he gets taken out of the game. He hacks off God. And God says, you're out. Elisha 
is going to do the rest of what you should have been doing. So God ends his ministry early and replaces him with Elisha. Now, I'm going to say this about Elisha. I think God had to, I think, you know, I think God has a sense of humor. And I think God chuckled at Elisha a little bit because when Elijah asks Elisha what he wants, Elisha says, I want a double portion. And God obviously is pleased with Elisha's chutzpah because if you look at Elijah's ministry, he works eight major miracles. How many major miracles are associated with Elisha? Sixteen. It's not 18 or 20 or 15 or 14. There's eight major miracles associated with Elijah, and Elisha works 16. His brazen request amuses God, apparently. God admires the kid's chutzpah, and God gives him his double portion. I think that's interesting. Now, go back in time for a minute. Let's note, like I said before, Moses dies on Mount, on or around Mount Nebo. And we're told that he's buried in the region of Pisgah, opposite of Beth Peor. So that puts it somewhere around either one part of Nebo or more likely over toward what's now identified today as Mount Pisgah. So let's look at Deuteronomy 34.1. And Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, the top of Pisgah. That's a region, see. Mount Nebo is the highest peak. It's the top of the region of Pisgah, which, which is opposite Jericho. And Yehovah caused him to see all the land, Gilead to Dan. All right? So Mount Nebo is the, is the mountain, and Pisgah is the summit region. And it lies directly east of the Jordan River, and it's in Moab. Okay, It's just northeast of the Dead Sea. It's the highest peak among the handful of Pisgah summits, okay? But there's a summit slightly west and north, if I'm remembering right, of Nebo that's today called Pisgah, okay? And this may be where Moses is buried, okay? So he's, he's buried in the Vale of the Jordan because those mountains are right there and then right you, you, you leave those mountains, you go right down into the valley of the Jordan. So the Vale of the Jordan is where he's buried at the foot of either Nebo or Pisgah, one of the two, probably mod, what's modern-day Pisgah. This valley is interesting because let's look at Elijah and Elisha in 4 Kingdoms 2 or 2 Kings chapter 2. Now, first of all, let me set the stage. They go to Gilgal, then they go to Bethel, which is west, then they go southeast to Jericho and then to the Jordan. So when they go to the Jordan, they've just left Jericho and they're going to the Jordan. They're opposite Nebo. They're heading toward Nebo and Pisgah. All right, so let's look at the passage. And Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for Jehovah has sent me to the Jordan. And this repeats several times. He tries to shake him at Gilgal. He tries to... He tries to shake this kid each time. He, he tries to shake him at Gilgal. He tries to shake, shake him at Bethel. He tries to shake him at Jericho. And he's like, you know, as long as I live and as long as you live, I'm not going to leave you. You know, is basically what he says. He says, actually, as your soul lives, he says, as Jehovah lives and your soul lives, I will not leave you. So, you know, he tries to shake him again as he's going to the Jordan. Right, verse 7. 
And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went on and stood afar off across from them. And they both stood by the Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the waters. And they were divided here and there so that they both went over on dry ground. And it happened when they were crossing, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Then let there now be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. If you shall see me taken from you, it shall be so to you. And if not, it shall not be. And it happened as they were going on and speaking, behold, a chariot of fire and horses of fire came. And they separated between them both. And Elijah went up in a tempest to heaven. Now, we all know, as I told you earlier, that Elisha, you know, God, God likes his spunk, right? And he gets his double portion. And he, you know, he sees Elijah taken into heaven and he gets his double portion. Now, if you have a map, you can see where they're heading. And they're heading for the Pisgah region with Mount Nebo and what's today called Mount Pisgah right across the Jordan Valley. Remember, Moshe dies and is buried around Mount Nebo and or Mount Pisgah. And that area is where Elijah is being sent and where he's taken up. Now let's look at Revelation chapter 11. This is verse 3. And I, and I will give to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if, pay attention to this, and if anyone desires to harm them, fire comes out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone desires to harm them, so it is right for him to be killed. In verse 6, these have the authority, talking about the witnesses, to shut up the heavens that no rain may fall in the days of their prophecy. Now, what's their prophecy? 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. So they're going to shut the heavens and prevent it from raining for three and a half years. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Fire will come down and consume their enemies. If you know the story of Elijah, you know that they send 50 men after Elijah and he prays and fire consumes them. They send 50 more and he zaps them again, or God does. He also calls down fire from heaven that consumes the sacrifices. You remember that? So this fire proceeding out of their mouth is, 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 is a idiomatic expression for... It's not that they're breathing fire. These are not fire-breathing dragons, people. They're not going to be like Smaug and go... And, and roast everybody. You know, it, it's, it's not that. What it means by fire comes out of their mouth is that they pray and fire descends out of heaven and consumes their enemies. That's what it means. All right? So the fire comes out of their mouth indirectly. They pray, the fire comes down. All right? That's Elijah. Shutting the heavens for three and a half years so it doesn't rain. That's Elijah's power. Now, that's the first two powers given to these witnesses. But wait, there's more. And they have authority. This is also verse... Right, we'll start back at verse 6 at the beginning. 
These have the authority to shut up the heavens that no rain may rain in the days of their prophecy. It's three and a half year prophecy, right? And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So who turns water into blood and strikes the world with plagues? Well, Charlton Heston did that to Yul Brynner, right? Watch the Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston turned the water into blood right in front of Yul Brynner. So Charlton Heston is right here. Not literally, but... But Moses, remember Charlton Heston famously played Moses in the Ten Commandments. It's a, it's, a, it's a Cecil B. DeMille movie reference. Come on, people, catch up. So Charlton Heston's coming back. That's what this is, right? This is Moshe. This is Moses' power. We're not going to see Yul Brenner again, unfortunately, which is too bad. I love Yul Brenner. But anyway, <laughs> but this is... This is very clearly the powers given to Elijah and Moses. So it's very, very important to get that. Now the next verse talks about what happens when their testimony is finished. That's interesting. Moses and Elijah had their testimonies, their missions interrupted. Let's look at verse 7. And when they complete their testimony. See, their, their missions, their testimonies were interrupted. Send in the substitute, Joshua and Elisha. Now they're coming back, in this view, they're coming back, and their testimony is being completed now. And when, they're t when they complete their testimony, the beast coming up out of the abyss will make war on, on them and will overcome them and kill them. Now, Yeshua said to Peter that the church will not be overcome by the gates of hell. That's Matthew 16, 18. So let me state that these are not the church, nor is it a movement. These are individuals, okay? Because the next verses start talking about their, what happens with their bodies. So this is individuals. These aren't movements. This isn't something metaphorical. These witnesses are individuals. But also, they're not Christians. They're not members of the church. They are first Testament saints, they're Jews. This is the time of Jacob's trouble. This is when the nation of Israel is really going to be pressed by the Antichrist. So let's look at verse 8. And their bodies will be on the streets of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Huh, so where is that? Next part of the verse. Where our Lord was crucified. So what they're saying is, is that Jerusalem will be like Sodom and Egypt. There'll be a lot of sin, a lot of waywardness. And it's where the Lord was crucified. So we know it's Jerusalem. And they from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations. This is important. Because this tells us that this could not have happened until recently. This couldn't have happened in the, in the 3rd century. This couldn't have happened in the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, or 19th century. Couldn't have happened then. Here's why. And they from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three days and a half. 
They're going to lie there dead three and a half days. And they will not, and the people will not allow the dead bodies to be entombed or buried. And those living on the earth will rejoice over them. This is the only time there's rejoicing in Revelation. Those living on the earth will rejoice over them and will make merry and they will send one another gifts because these two prophets tormented those living on the earth. Now verse 11, And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood on their feet and a great fear fell on the ones beholding them. And they heard a great voice out of heaven saying unto them, Come up here. And they went up into the heaven in the cloud, and their enemies saw them. And in that hour a great earthquake occurred, and the tenth part of the city fell, and there were killed in the earthquake seven thousand names of men. And the rest became terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Okay, so that's what happens with the two witnesses. But notice, uh, and those living on the earth will rejoice, right? But also verse 9, and they from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three days and a half. This is why it couldn't happen in any century except the 20th on. We didn't have global telecommunications until the 20th century. This, in order for all the nations of the world to see this, which is what this says, this has to happen through a global communications network. Satellite television. That's what this is. And so this could not have happened before the 20th century, before the second half of the 20th century even. Because there wasn't a global network even in the 50s and 60s when TV was first taking off, there still wasn't a global network then. It's not until the last part of the 20th century and now in the 21st century that this can happen. There's no way that somebody living in Canada can see their dead bodies without a global communications network. Or Alaska. Or New Guinea. I'm not saying, let me say this, categorically. No one knows when the end times will come, right? Only God knows that. So I'm not saying the end times are here. I'm just saying that it's now possible for the end times to come about. The end times could not come about until this prophecy was fulfilled. And it's still not fulfilled. We haven't seen the two witnesses yet, right? But part of that prophecy that is now fulfilled, remember, prophecy, prophecy that isn't always fulfilled in one fell swoop. Sometimes it, it builds and is piecemeal fulfilled. So now the technology part is fulfilled. Now we're waiting on the rest. But again, let's go back. We know Elijah has to return because of Malachi. There, there's no debate. And I, don't, I don't know any scholars that really debate that one of these witnesses is Elijah. A lot of people though debate about Moses because what they do is they use Hebrews 9:27 as their their basis in logic and and if you read Hebrews 9:27 it says and and as it is appointed unto men once to die but after this the judgment 
And using that logic, people say, okay, people can only die once, and Moses died, so he's, he's done. The only two people that didn't die are Elijah and Enoch. So a lot of people will point to Enoch. However, the description of the miracles are the miracles worked by Elijah and Moshe, not Enoch. And Enoch has a problem. To me, there's a problem with Enoch. Because Enoch has, some, has, a, has a characteristic that disqualifies him from this ministry. He is a patriarch of the past, right? A descendant of Adam, of Adam. But Enoch wasn't Jewish. He wasn't a Jewish saint. He was pre-Jewish. There was no Judaism there. There was not even the Noahic covenant at this point. The first leading up to Judaism covenant is with Noah. Well, it's called the Noahic covenant. But it's still not Judaism yet. The Judaic covenant, the covenant that will lead to Judaism is the Abrahamic covenant where he makes, where God makes a covenant with Abram, changing his name to Abraham, right? And then he makes a follow-up covenant with Jacob, changing his name to Israel. So you can pick and choose whether the, the Jacobian or the Israel covenant is the covenant that marks the beginning of Judaism or the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant marks the beginning of Judaism. But it's one of those. And some people disagree. Some people say it's the covenant with Abraham. Some people say it's the covenant with Jacob. But that's where Judaism is, has its foundations laid. Not Enoch. Enoch is before that. So Enoch isn't Jewish. He's a prophet, but he's not a Jew. So this probably, in my mind at least, disqualifies him from this role. The only other person it could be, and if you look at the miracles, and if you look at the evidence, seems to point to Moshe. But is there any other evidence that it might be Moshe? Well, let's look. Well, let's look. But before I go on with that, let me clear up the Hebrews 9.27 issue. I almost went past it and didn't come back to it. Now, I got off on Enoch, and I, and I almost failed to explain what 927 is about. The problem using 927, that it's appointed man but wants to die, and after that, the judgment, as your justification for saying that oh, this has to be Enoch, is that is not true, if you look at it absolutely. You see, Hebrews 927, if you read the context, is Yeshua dying for our sins. And we have a judgment that we have to face. And so those that are, are living in, in the covenant of Yeshua, right, accepting Yeshua as the Messiah and all that, don't have to fear the judgment. People who don't have that assurance mentally did a lot of gymnastics back then to try to get out of uh, this notion that there would be a, a judgment when they die. And they came up with an idea of reincarnation. Okay, so the problem with using Hebrews 9.27 is 
if you take this literally and absolutely, you have an issue. Because this verse, in the context of it, is a passage that's talking about why Yeshua died for us and took on our sin. He did it because we die and there's a judgment. And people had done a lot of mental gymnastics to try to find a way out of a judgment when they die, and they came up with this idea of reincarnation. And even some Jews thought there might be reincarnation. As a matter of fact, today, there are Hasidic Jews. Get on YouTube and, and, and look at uh, some of the, Has the Hasidic rabbis that are out there. There are Hasidic rabbis today that will preach that, that the soul returns many times. And this passage is an absolute refutation of reincarnation. No, there is no reincarnation. You live, you die, you're judged. All right? 1 Corinthians 15, 46 refutes the idea that your soul is created in heaven before you were born, by the way. And these are two myths that people came up with. There was a, there's a belief, and I've even heard Christians say that. Well, you know, they said, well, when God made you, and and you came, and your soul came down, uh, when I got pregnant with you and came down from heaven. Eh, wrong. Sorry. No, your soul is not created by God. Wait, what? You heard me. Your soul isn't created by God, at least not directly. Look at First Corinthians fifteen forty six. But that which is spiritual is not first, but that which is natural. After that, which is spiritual. When you take that with John chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the authority to become, what? Benechilohim, sons of God, to those believing in his name. Let's take this together and explain it. When God makes creation and gives women and men the ability to take part in a creative act and create life, and He gives us the command, be fruitful and multiply, God creates the biological with the ability to generate the spiritual. What is natural comes first, and a spirit grows out of it. We are not benechalohim. We are not sons of God. That Hebrew phrase is only used of a direct creation of God. In the First Testament, it is only used of Adam and the angels. It's a, very, it's a technical term. When John tells us that when you receive Yeshua... To them he gave authority to become Benechalohim, sons of God. What he is saying is, is that you are reborn. Now let me tell you about this reborn thing. This is not a metaphor. This is not poetry. It is spiritually an actual event. And I'm going to, I like Forged in Fire. I like the TV show Forged in Fire. So I'm going to use some Forged in Fire metaphor to get this point across. The biological comes first. When you are conceived, the sperm and the egg get together. You get half your genes from your daddy, half your genes from your mom, half your germs from your mother, half your genes from your mother, half your genes from your daddy. And it produces a zygote. And at some point, 
and I don't, I'm not going to get into that debate. I don't know exactly when this happens. But at some point, the biological has the ability somehow to generate a soul. The natural is first, then the spiritual. You are not a direct creation of God. You're born of the natural. You are Ben-Ahadam, sons of Adam, or Benoth adam daughters of Adam. When you accept Jesus, you are reborn. God takes that soul generated of the natural. And here's my forest and fire language. He reforges it into something new. And you become a direct creation of God. You become Benecha Elohim or Benoth Elohim, sons or daughters of God. That's what's being said here in these passages. So understand that. The rebirth is a creative event. You are spiritually taken, your spirit is taken and reforged, if you want to use that force and fire language, reshaped, remade. It's yatsad or asad which is to be made from something already present. Your soul's already there. It's remade by God, by His own hands, and you become a direct creation of God. You become Benecha Elohim, or Benoth Elohim. Okay? So understand that. But that passage of Hebrews 9.27 is often erroneously used to try to point to Enoch. Because it's appointed somebody just wants to die. Well, let me refute that a little bit. That is a principle. There are exceptions. Okay? That is a principle that says there is no reincarnation. You don't get, keep living over and over and over again. Reincarnation doesn't do anything but perpetuate sin anyway. It doesn't deal with the issue. So... There is no reincarnation, and that is a general principle, but there are exceptions, okay? Now, let's deal with these exceptions for a minute just to explain this. Zarephath's son in three kingdoms, 17, is raised by Elijah. That would be first, king, first Kings, 17. The Shunammite woman's son is raised by Elisha, four kingdoms, four, or second Kings, four. A Jewish man is being buried. They see people coming over the horizon that are armed and are invading Israel. The, 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 the pallbearers are afraid and they chuck this guy's body into the tomb of Elisha. And when the dead man falls on Elisha's corpse, his bones, he gets up and walks out of the tomb restored to life. Four kingdoms chapter 13, or 2 Kings, chapter 13. The widow of Nain's son is raised by Yeshua in Luke 7. Jairus' daughter is raised by Yeshua in Luke 8. Lazarus is raised by Yeshua in John 11. And an unknown number of people are raised from the dead when Yeshua dies. That's in Matthew 27. I'm going to read that one because most people totally miss this one. 
All right, here we go. I'm going to read from the King James. This is Matthew 27. And we're going to start in verse 50. Yeshua, I'm reading from the restored name, King James. <clears throat> Yeshua, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain, from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Verse 52, pay attention to this. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. And they came out, this is verse 53, and they came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Whoa. Did, did y'all realize this? Did anybody know this? That's interesting, isn't it? People were resurrected when Jesus died and was resurrected. That is, that's mind-blowing, right? Most, how many of you knew this? A lot of people don't. Don't feel bad. I remember the first time I figured that out. I was like, wait a minute. All right? I'm going to read to you from a, a literal translation. 52, And the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming forth out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered into the holy city and were revealed to many. So the way that reads, I just want to explain that. This is talking about when Jesus died and the tombs were opened. This is when the, the earthquake. And one interpretation of this scripture, and I don't know if it's right or not, but this is one interpretation. From the grammar and the way this reads, this seems to be what it's saying. Because it says, And behold, the veil of the holy place was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were sheared. And the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So, they were raised from the dead. And apparently they stayed in the graveyard or around there for a couple of days because and coming forth out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and were revealed to many. So it, the way that reads, one interpretation is, is that they were resurrected when he died and they hung out in the tombs for a couple of days until his resurrection and then they went out of the graveyards and went into the city. That's one way that that passage is read. A second way that passage is read is that the tombs were opened and the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. In other words, they were not raised necessarily from the dead, but raised up out of the ground and were exposed and then resurrected when he, resurrect, when he was resurrected. That's another way it's, it's looked at. I, I can't tell you either way. Okay, I don't know which one is correct. But it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that they were raised up out of the ground and these bodies were just laying there in the sun for three days and then get up and, and, and become animate. I suspect they were raised from the dead and they, they, they stayed in the tombs. And, and his resurrection, they exited the tombs. That seems to be the way it reads here. But, I just wanted to point that one out. And the light, there is another one that's, that's associated with, uh, with Yeshua and, and the whole 
crucifixion thing, but I'm going to get to that in a minute. Uh, Tabitha is raised by Peter in Acts 9. Eutychus, E-U-T-Y-Y had the U sound in a lot of these ancient languages. So Eutychus uh, is raised by Paul in Acts 20. The last one, as far as, uh, as Yeshua goes, is a bit disputed. But Mark makes reference to a boy in Gethsemane that was wrapped in linen. Now, he's wrapped in a, a simple sheet of linen. That was a common practice to take bodies and wrap them in a sheet of linen. Remember, Yeshua is wrapped in a sheet of, lin of linen. This sounds like this kid's wearing grave clothes. He flees, and when people try to grab him, his linen cloth comes off, and he flies naked into the night. Now, we don't know if he was what we would call today butt naked, right? We don't know if he was stark naked, or because naked could have meant no clothes except his, basically his loincloth, his, his underwear. At that time, you were said to be naked if, if your shirt was off and your legs can be seen. So if you just basically had your, your, your skivvies on, as we would say today, you could be considered naked. So we don't know if this guy was truly stark naked or naked in the sense of the time, which could have meant that he still had skivvies on but was uncovered everywhere else. Now, one of the traditions of this is if you look back at John uh, chapter 18. We're going to look at verse 4. Yeshua, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom seek you? And they answered him, Yeshua of Nazareth. Yeshua said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backwards and fell to the ground. A lot of people miss this. What happens here is Yeshua, when he says, I am he, he says, I am, which is the same identifier that the angel of the Lord uses uh, when, when Moshe asks his name, I am. Tell them I am has sent you, right? When Yeshua says, I am he, he unleashes power. They're knocked backwards and to the ground. A lot of people miss this. Now let's look at Mark chapter 14. It says, And there followed with him a certain young man having linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. One tradition says is that when Yeshua says, I am, and unleashed the power that knocks them down, a fresh corpse is raised from the dead in the graveyard at the bottom of that mount. The Garden of Gethsemane is up on this hill. At the bottom of that hill was a burying ground. And one tradition is, is that when Yeshua says, I am he, and they're knocked to the ground, somebody who'd been buried that day pops up out of the grave. So that's disputed, but that may be another example of someone who dies twice. So understand that the principle in Hebrews is a principle that this is the rule, but there are exceptions because Yeshua resurrects some people. There's people resurrected by Elijah and Elisha. There's even one guy that resurrects after Elisha is already dead. So just understand that, that that's a principle. 
but it doesn't necessarily mean that just because Moshe is dead that he's disqualified from coming back and being one of these witnesses. So, all of this taken into account, is there any other evidence that Yeshua and Elijah may be the two witnesses? Remember me going on so much about Mount Pisgah and Mount Nebo. All right, now here's where you remember in that stuff, it's about to pay off, okay? I've been burying the lead here. If you look in chapter 16 of Matthew, it starts, okay? The last verse of chapter 16 of Matthew is when this actually starts, okay? And then you go on to 17, and we're talking about this transfiguration that's about to happen. He prophesies in the last verse of 16 that people not tasting, that, well, the people that, that don't taste death and, uh, until you know, they see you know, me come into the kingdom. And what you have to understand there is that a lot of traditions came out of that. Some of them very strange, okay? But he says, Verily I say unto you, there, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death, till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. This is direct reference to what's about to happen is one view. The other is, it may be a reference to His ascension after His resurrection, and that's witnessed, of course, by the, by the disciples. It could be either one, and it honestly could be both. There is nothing that says that a prophecy cannot refer to two events with a very similar nature. Okay? So this actually could be both. He could be referring to both here. I will say that there's a tradition that comes out of this, and that's the tradition of Cartaphilus, the wandering Jew, who is a Jew who was supposed to be in the house of Pilate, uh, and he strikes Pilate, I mean, excuse me, he strikes Yeshua um, as he's going out and said, go quickly, you know, Jesus. And Jesus says, I'll go quickly, but you, you know, you will stay until I return. And so there is this legend of this Jewish guy who cannot die until the second coming of Christ. Some point to that uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, as supporting this claim of Cartaphilus. I don't think it applies to that. I think the wandering Jew is an interesting legend. But I don't think it has any real merit. We may talk about the wandering Jew one day because it's one of those interesting biblically uh, linked legends, but I don't think it's anything really to do with reality. I think it's just a legend. <clears throat> uh, much, like, much like the legend of Prester John, which we'll talk about. We, we may talk about Prester John and, and medieval legends that come out of some things uh, in, in one episode. If... Uh, if people want to hear that, uh, I will, uh, I'll do that. But we see this. He's talking about uh, they're not going to taste the death of the seat, the Son of Man come into his kingdom. And then we start with this transfiguration event in chapter 17. And after six days, Yeshua took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain. All right, and He was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was as white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias. All right? Talking with him. All right? So, this is the transfiguration. They're on a mount. 
Now, we need to figure out then, where are they? All right, where are they? Well, they're in Moab, and I'll tell you how I get there. All right, so he's transfigured. We see Moshe and, Eli and Elijah, and they're talking, and Peter said, uh, Sir, it's good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make three tabernacles, one for, one for thee, one for Moshe, and one for Elijah. Now, open mouth, insert foot, and chew vigorously, right? Uh, that's a screw-up on Peter's part because he's making three tabernacles, one for Yeshua, one for Moshe, and one for Eli Elijah. That implies that they're equal. Of course, they're not. Moshe and Elijah are not equal to Yeshua. God shuts him up, though, and a bright cloud overshadows them, and lo, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am delighted. Hear him. And the disciples, having heard, did fall upon their face and were exceedingly afraid. Okay? Now, let's look at Luke 9.31. Talking about Yeshua, who appeared in glory, and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Right. Luke is talking about this transfiguration event all right, in Luke chapter 9. And he talks about the transfiguration. And it came to pass, about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter, James, and John and went up to a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, he talked... Uh, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias. Okay, so Luke's telling the story. And if you look in 31, it says that, that he appeared in glory, and, they, and they, that these three are appearing in glory, and they sp spake of his decease. In other words, Yeshua's death, which is to come, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that are there with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Yeshua, Master, it is good for us to be here. And he, and he goes on. So what we're told in Luke is that this meeting between Yeshua, Moshe, and Elijah is a staff meeting. And they're discussing the crucifixion at least. But let's, let's go on. 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 and 12. Peter's referencing in 1 Peter and 2 Peter the transfiguration. In verse 10, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. So he's actually referencing here the transfiguration. It's a little clearer in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord, Yeshua the Christ. All right, he's talking about the power and coming, the next one. The second coming. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from the heavens we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So he's talking about the transfiguration. 
okay? But what he tells us in 1 Peter is that he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, when this event testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, and the glory that should follow. So what we're saying is, is that there's a point at which Yeshua, Elijah, and Moshe are discussing not only Yeshua's crucifixion, but the judgment and stuff to come. And it's very probable they were discussing their return. Now, it gets more interesting though. If you go to the Holy Land and you follow the tour guides, they'll take you to a mountain in Galilee and tell you that's the mountain of the Transfiguration. There's even a church up there. So let's look at the traditions. Mount Tabor is the traditional location. It's the, early, the earliest identification uh, of it as the Mount of Transfiguration is by origin in the 3rd century. It's also mentioned by Cyril of Jerusalem and, and Jerome in the 4th century. It's later mentioned um, in a 5th century text. It's mentioned um, by the Venerable Mary, Mary of Jesus of um, Agreda in the 1600s. It's been a, a tradition, all right? But there's a problem with Mount Tabor. It doesn't fit where they were going. Now, Mount Hermon has been suggested, and that's by J. Lightfoot and R.H. Fuller, for two reasons. It's the highest site in the area, and the transfiguration took place on a high mountain, according to Matthew 17.1. And it's located near Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16.13, where the previous events reportedly took place. Also, the angels that came down in the days of Jared landed on Mount Hermon, and some hold the view that Yeshua is transfigured on the mountain in an act of taking the mountain back from the fathers of the Nephilim. So that's one, that's another view. The other view is Mount Pisgah. Doug Wetmore and Chuck Missler point out that the modern Mount Pisgah, which is near Nebo, is in that area. Moses is buried around Mount Pisgah or Nebo, and Elijah had come to the same valley at the base of Pisgah when he's taken up in a whirlwind and chariots of fire, right? Now, looking at Mark 9, they come off of the mountain. The disciples are unable to help a demoniac. Yeshua casts the demon out and tells the disciples it's because of their un unbelief. Then look at verse 30. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. So, you can't be in a mountain in Galilee and depart and pass through Galilee. That's the argument. It, it seems as if they are in the vale of the Jordan. They're in the Jordan Valley near Pisgah. This is the mountain that Elijah saw last. It's the mountain that Moshe is buried at. Could it be? Could it be? that this is where the transfiguration is. That Yeshua goes to where Moshe is buried and Elijah was taken up. And that is where he has this staff meeting. If that's so, then that means they were in Moab, not in Galilee. And they couldn't have been in Galilee because the scriptures tell us that they left that place and passed through Galilee. So, what did we learn tonight with the mysteries of Moses? There was a dispute over the cadaver, the corpse of Moshe. 
And the devil wanted it. We don't know exactly why, but it's a very good speculation that he wanted to use it to lead people astray. And when he doesn't get it, he uses the symbol of Yeshua that Moses made, the brazen serpent, which was a prophecy of Yeshua, and uses it to try to corrupt people too. Till Hezekiah refers to it contemptuously as a piece of brass and has it destroyed because it's been defiled as an idol. We then looked at why God would have buried Moshe. Why God did it. Not only to hide it, potentially, but to protect it. Because it's just possible that Moshe may need that body again. And that he is one of the two witnesses that's sent in Revelation along with Elijah. Admittedly, these are all speculations. But there is some scriptural evidence for, for this and other arguments. And so I encourage you, dig into the scriptures. Make up your own minds. See what you can find. What's fun about this is not being right or wrong. We can misinterpret things like this, and I don't really believe it's, it's, it, it's not salvation dependent. Okay? Understanding this stuff doesn't make a difference on your salvation. And sometimes we may give God a chuckle with some of the things that we come up with. Sometimes he may just roll his eyes at us. But the fun part about this is not being right or wrong. I could be wrong. I could be very wrong. And it be totally different people. But what's fun about this is the search in the Scriptures. Don't believe me. Search the Scriptures. The greatest thing about doing this podcast is I am trying to get people curious about the scriptures. My aim is to get you interested in looking this stuff up yourself and researching the scriptures. God will not bless you with understanding if you don't show interest in understanding. But if you show interest in understanding, God will grant you understanding. And so show interest in the scriptures. That's my goal here is to get people interested, to look these things up, to start thinking about these things. And who knows? Somebody else may come up with a different hypothesis and, and, and after we die, they'll be able to look at me and go, hey, 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 I, what did I tell you? <laughs> and I may have to go, you were right. It may happen. But get out there, read the scriptures, delve into this stuff, and have fun doing it. Enjoy the search. God wants us to read his word with joy. So get out there and, and enjoy the search. And like I said, if you've enjoyed this episode, if you've enjoyed any of the other episodes of Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button, and let me know. Now, may the peace of Yeshua go with you. May the Lord bless and keep you. Make his light, light to shine upon you. And may you find joy in reading the Word of God. Until next time, God bless and good night.